Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and uh, I'm very excited about my guest this morning. Um, She is a wonderful woman doing some really great work. She's actually calling us today from uh, North Carolina. Am I right, Deanne? Are you calling from North Carolina? Charlotte, North Carolina, my hometown, that's right. Okay. Uh, I'm being joined by Deanne Wingate, and Deanne is the founder of Rippled Purpose and also Blessed Lotus. And both of these organizations are charitable organizations, um, which Deanne formed to help fight against human trafficking in impoverished communities, as well as contributing to social entrepreneurship uh, among the poorest of the poor. Thanks so much for joining us today, Deanne. Thank you so much for having me and for everything you're doing to help all the women uh, around the world and, and here in uh, the United States Thank spread you, the word of what they're doing. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate that. Um, I, I really am excited to hear about what, uh, what the latest is with the work that you're doing. I've been following you for quite a while, as you know. Um, but I'd like to, I'm real interested in your, your backstory and, and um, what your life was like growing up in Charlotte and uh, what it was that helped shape the work that you're doing today. So can you talk sure. for a little bit about that? Absolutely. I grew up, as I mentioned before, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I lived, I had a very privileged um, childhood experience. I went to a private school and while I went to church every week, I never really spent a lot of time in areas that were uh, impoverished. And that actually that ended up changing when I went to college, Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. And I went to Rollins, gosh, that was in 1992, um, and they had an amazing program every January for a month. Students were, able, were given the opportunity to go off campus and they could uh, go to Canada to learn French, or they could go to impoverished countries and actually do work similar to Peace Corps-type work. And that's what I did. Um, I went one year to Guatemala, and I lived in a mountain town that didn't have any electricity. It didn't have any running water, no no toilets, no, no showers, um, And what was so amazing to me was that the people were so happy. Growing up, I was taught that to be to be happy, you have to be successful, and success comes from having having money and and having a a fabulous career and having power and respect. But what this these people taught me was that actually it has nothing to do with success has nothing to do and happiness has nothing to do with how much money you make or how much power you have, it really has to do with coming from on the inside. Um, and so I came back to the States and um, it just really, it really shook me up because you know, as you can imagine for 18 years, I believe that, well, if you don't have money, then, then your life is in, is in, is in shattered. Um, and then coming from this, uh, this, 
amazing experience in Guatemala. And then following the next year in the Dominican Republic, it just rocked my world. And especially, again, so many families I knew, parents were divorced or getting divorced. Parents were never home because they were working um, so much to try to be successful. And yet there was, again, so much happiness with this impoverished community. So it really created, it sparked a passion in my heart um, for those who are impoverished because it gave a face to to the words. And um, it really just cre- definitely created this idea at some point in my life, I'm going to do something to serve the world. Now, I graduated from college with a major in political science and minors in economics and Spanish, Mm -hmm. and I was supposed to go into the financial world, but decided I wasn't ready for that. Um, So I ended up moving to Colorado for a little bit and then moving to Boston. Okay. And when I moved to Boston in 97, that's when I got involved in the Internet space. And back then, you know, in the early 90s, the Internet, no one knew what I was doing. My parents had no idea but it was so much fun for me, and I ended up moving from Boston to Chicago, from Chicago to New York, and uh, had just an explosive career and loved it and was so passionate about the Internet space. So I did what I was supposed to do uh, from, a, from growing up what was expected as far as being successful and making the money. I was a vice president, vice president of a multi billion-dollar media company in New York, which is the mecca for advertising. Mm-hmm. But inside, I just knew that it, this wasn't it. It wasn't it. And every time I sat on a plane, I traveled so much because I ran the Northeast and the Midwest uh, regions for for the media company. Um so every time I sat on the plane, which was at least twice a week, I started feeling heart palpitations. And it really scared me because I was young. I was in my mid-30s, 35, 35, 36. And I realized, okay, now this is really, now really it is the time. I've got to stop this because not only do I know that there's something more for me to do in this world, if I don't, then something's going to happen to my health. So that really accelerated the decision-making process for me to resign April 1st of 2010. Okay. You know, I want to go back for a minute, Deanne, listening to your story. I I wanted to know what precipitated your um, taking that trip in college. Would would you say that at Mm. that time you were feeling, you know, what, from the background you came from, what was it that made you decide to go um, to Guatemala? My brother, actually, um, he he and I are 21 months apart in age, but we were only a year. He was a, he is was a year behind me in school, and we went to school kindergarten through well 11th grade for me uh, with him. And then when I went to Rollins, he followed me there after um, because I told him it was such an amazing school, and so we ended up going to college together. And he actually went to Guatemala first. I My first uh, trip was to go to Canada to learn French. But he told me, oh, my gosh, Deanne, this is the most amazing experience. You have to go to Guatemala. And so that's the reason why I went. Now, I, I forgot in this conversation that when I was, gee, maybe in 
10th grade, I think around 10th grade, I went to the former USSR. So I went to Russia and the Ukraine as a student ambassador from the United States. And at that time, well, it, it, it is the financial situation, especially in the Ukraine right now, is horrific. But uh, by that time, it was Gorbachev was still in office, and people were trading jeans. I don't know if you remember back then the stories of jeans being on the black market. Um, and so I experienced poverty and oppression from that I'd never in my wildest dreams thought could ever happen. And I was welcomed by these people who were so different from a culture standpoint, from a political standpoint, but they gave me everything that they had when I entered into their homes. And they, you know, they're standing in line for bread. Um, we're talking when we went to the when we went to the Ukraine. Uh, there were there's a river called the Dnieper River. D-N-I-E-P-E-R, I think it's the way it's spelled. And there are signs all along the river that, that are warned people do not fish because it's poisonous. And yet there are people all along the banks of the river fishing because their families were starving. So for them, it was there was no choice. They needed, they needed to, to fill the stomachs of, the, of, their, of their children. Mm-hmm. So it was just a, such a horrific experience. And I honestly, I've traveled a lot. Uh, I traveled a lot when I was in in high school and and, and in college, but that was really the only time outside of my trip and living in India, the only time that I was homesick for the United States because of the freedom, because of, of our ability to do what we want to do and the economy and just the, the I guess, again, it, it was the freedom because there was so much darkness in Russia and in the Ukraine back then. And um, so, yeah, so I was, when it was time to leave after the nine weeks, I was really ready to go to come home. Yeah. But that definitely from a, a oppressed situation, because I, Guatemala, the people were, for the most part, they were impoverished, but it didn't seem like the people were oppressed. But definitely uh, when I was in when I was in Russia and the Ukraine, there was this essence of oppression that was palpable there. Mm-hmm. But yet it was so that was diff- that was a different experience as far as the people and and what you saw and felt from uh, when you were in India. Is that right? When I was in India, I was so to take a back step. I uh, when I moved to Chicago, I moved to Chicago on my own without ever being to the city. And, and um, when I I've been to Columbia, Bogota, Columbia, by myself, so I'm very independent and I'm not a, a feel fearful person for the most part when it comes to traveling. But mm-hmm. India has always scared me and it scared me because of the oppression from a religious standpoint the gender inequality the violence towards women the violence towards children there was so much darkness attributed to the country for me that i had no inclination to want to travel there right and um, when this opportunity came up for me to go to india I said no. 
And uh, was that a work I, related? I, was that a work related opportunity? It was okay. So, so what happened? Just a just a backstep a, a little bit. When I left New York in April of 2010, I ended up moving to Mexico for a year because I needed to I needed to completely get away from from media from from constant communication because when I was in New York. I was on, well, back then, my BlackBerry, and I had an iPhone, uh, and and uh, instant message, talking on my landline, emailing. It was just, there was nonstop communication, and I had to Unplug. step away. And I, it's almost detox, really. Yeah. I had to detox. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, that's so, yeah, that's so common today. You know, we're we're accessible at all moments of every day. And sometimes you need to not be accessible. Absolutely. But I, I loved what I did so much back in the advertising world. I, when my clients emailed me at 10 o'clock at night, I was so overjoyed to answer their email that night to, to, to give them the information they needed. Okay. And it, that, was, that was fun for me, but I was also single. I didn't have a family. Um, but, yes, now things have, have changed. Um, but, yeah, so I... So, so the reason why I bring up going to Mexico, why it was so important, was because had I not had that experience of detoxing, if I would have gone directly from New York to India, I would have, I would have lost it, um, and I'll explain why. So when I returned to the States after living in Mexico for the year, I uh, didn't know what I was going to do. I knew there was a bigger purpose for my life. And for me, religion, well, my my relationship with God, I, I don't say religion, I say my relationship with God is what drives me. And so I knew there was this bigger, bigger purpose for my life. I just wasn't sure what that purpose was. So I was living with my mom for the time being to try and figure out, okay, so what is it? And a, a friend of mine had started a nonprofit in India, and she asked me to accompany her to meet this couple because she wanted to get some information from them on how to better her nonprofit in India, because this couple had started their own organization in India, and uh, they had great experience. And so I said, you know, what the heck? I need to get out of my mom's house. So I'll go with you and, and go meet with this uh, this couple. And um, it ended up they needed someone to go to India to run a project for them, and uh, they wanted me to do it because of my my business background. Right. And, so at that uh, time you were not, you were no longer with the advertising agency. Right. Okay. So I, I left, I was actually um, working for Univision, uh, which is a, a Hispanic media company. Okay. And um, so I had left Univision April of 2010 and moved to Mexico for a year, came back from Mexico in 2011. Okay. And got it. Um, so it was during this, time after I'd returned from Mexico mm-hmm. that I met this um, the couple and they wanted me to go to India and I and I told them there's no way I'm not your person I cannot do that and uh, I couldn't get away from them fast enough because you know when you know you're supposed to do something but you just don't want to do it so you you have this feeling inside but you know you need to do it. That's, that was that was this feeling inside of me. It's like when you're a child and your mom tells you, don't do this, but you really want to do it. 
Right. <laughs> so I had to get myself out of that situation quickly. So let's see, maybe a couple months, maybe three months later, I decided, you know what, it is time. I need to start, I need to start making money again because I'd saved money for a year to be able to not work, but I needed, I needed to start making some, some income. Mm-hmm. And, um, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go back to Chicago or New York. I'm going to get back into the internet space. I'm going to do what I was doing. And, uh, that's just what I have to do. And, and when I decided to do that, Sue, I didn't feel this excitement in my heart. I felt, I felt nothing, but I felt like I needed to go in a direction. And that's what you knew. Yeah. Yes, I knew. I knew stag, being stagnant for anyone. Being mm-hmm. stagnant is a bad situation. Right. And so, um, let's see. So, so anyway. So, as far as um, not being. Okay, right. I'm sorry. I forgot where I was. It's a complicated story. <laughs> well, you went. <laughs> so you were said you went back to Chicago, and that was that in 2011. Then. Oh, oh no! I I didn't. I'm sorry. I didn't go back to Chicago. I decided I was going to do it. Okay. So I decided I'm sitting in the room in my mom's house that I'd been staying in. And I decided it was in the afternoon. I decided, all right, I have to, I have to do something. I'm going to just move back. I'm going to move back to Chicago or I'm going to move back to New York. And a couple hours, a couple of hours later, a good friend of mine emailed me and he reminded me who I was. He reminded me that I was a courageous person, passionate. He just said the most amazing things to me. And I knew I have to go to India. Wow. So, so that phone call, that phone call was a turning point. That the email that he sent or the email. Yeah. Yes. That was the, that was the, you're right. That is the person that I am. I cannot run away from my fear. I have to move forward. I have to do what I know is my, um, my hero's journey, I guess. I don't know if you've read any of Joseph Campbell, but um, it is the next step of, of, of my life. Right. And so I ended up going to India, and um, it was just a miraculous experience. So many things happened. Um, I uh, was sleeping in a room, and a man entered in the room, and... Um, Somehow I was brave enough to tell him to leave out of the room. There were so many instances of life or death situations, and wow. but I but I made it, and and I got and I got through it, and I saw and got to know a people who are beautiful and loving and kind and and um, just impoverished, and that was. That was the one thing that I knew would break my heart was seeing seeing people, seeing women in the circumstances that I saw them. When I was in Mumbai, I the first week that I was there in India, I went to a uh, I went to a, and I wouldn't even call it um, a brothel because when I think when I thought of brothels, I thought of Honestly, the best little whorehouse in Texas, which was when I was growing up, that was the movie that you couldn't watch when you were a kid. (laughs) I I was thinking of uh, something that was similar to that, but this was just, I could not even imagine the circumstances. 
in the middle of a field. It looked like like a horse barn divided, one long structure divided into three separate large rooms that were divided. Each room was divided by a sheet that was hanging from the ceiling, and they used wooden tables, not beds, but wooden tables. And I literally would stand outside with, with the girls and talk with them, and the men would come up and take them inside. Oh. And it was it, – it, seeing something like like that is – it's too much. It's too much to for us yeah. to process right. emotionally, psychologically. Yes. Um, so that was an eye opener. I knew it was an. Well, it was. It, I knew this is an injustice, and this this can't be. We can't know that this is happening and not do something about it. Yeah, Deanne, I want to know what what work were you doing there? What was your role um, with the group you were with? My original role was to open up an aftercare center for for girls who had been rescued from um, from the brothels, but it actually ended up changing due to government restrictions. And so, instead of opening up the aftercare center, I ended up spending time in a place called Goa with a woman. Elena, who is from Brazil, actually, and had been living in a slum area for over 14 years because she felt led to to be of service and to help this this slum community. And so she had started a school. So I spent time with her and learning about what she was doing, getting to know the community. The community is actually there because the people – work in the adjacent chemical factory and the chemical factory owns the land that the slum is on that the people live on and they let the people live there for free because they they don't pay the people I mean the money is just it's nothing there's no of course there's no running water there are no bathrooms the people use the bathroom outside on an adjacent hill mm-hmm. and um so, the, so this woman, Elena, knew education was the only hope for the children. Right. Education and the children needed love. The culture there is such that children, especially when you're talking about the lowest caste, children are seen as garbage isn't the word, but it is the word is it's they're an expense, especially girls, because when girls are married off, then the families have to pay a dowry. And often when the families pay the dowry, it sends the family even deeper into poverty. So education really is important to to the children, but it's giving them the love that they're not getting in their home because children as young as five, six years old have to wake up at four in the morning to cook, to clean, when they're 10 years old, 8 years old, they're going off to work with their parents. Child labor is is under the age of, I believe it's 14, is acceptable in India. But people still allow children as young as 8, 7, 6 years old to go to, go to work because they're cheap. Um, and so... 
There's also, because of the stress of the lack of money in the family, alcoholism runs runs rampant, Mm -hmm. and violence ensues. There's a lot of hitting. Fathers hit the wives. The wives hit the children. The children hit each other. That's the way that they deal with, with, with anger is through hitting. And so the school that Elena had started in the slum taught the children to love each other and taught and teaches the girls that they are just as valuable and just as precious as the boys are. And she hugs them, and the teachers hug the children. And I know, I know this might seem like not a big deal, but when you see the violence that happens to these to these children, then you would understand how how life changing it is for them to get this love. So she's giving them love, and she's giving them an education to give them a chance and a way out of just the dismal situation that they live in. It's, it's, so that it's, was wow. I mean, that's I mean, to come from where you came from and be kind of, you know, literally thrown into that and seeing something just the complete opposite of the life you knew. Um, that's very overwhelming. And, you know, one of the questions I had for you, Deanne, was when you when you see um, a place like that, where do you even begin to, to tell yourself that you you can make a difference? Mm hmm. What I love to do is talk to people about their vision and help them make that vision happen. So in the Internet space, I love talking with companies like a, like a General Mills to find out, okay, what, what do you want to do, and let me help you make that happen. So when I sat down with Elena, the woman who started the school in that some community, and I asked her, okay, Elena, so what's your dream what, where do you see your school? Where do you see yourself? And she got so excited and her eyes lit up and sparkled. And she told me that she wants to expand the school and have her own bricks and mortar school. So it's important for me to take a step back and to give you an idea of what the school is like in India. It's not a standalone bricks and mortar. It's in an apartment building. She's on the second floor and she's in at the time, she was in two apartments. She was renting out two apartments. And there is not anywhere, there's not a place for the children to, to play outside. There's a large area that is where children could play, but there's glass and the children don't have shoes. So this is why for her, she wants to give the children a place to be children and to play. Right. And she also wants to expand the school because she has to say no. She's been in in this community for so long that she has established trust within the community. And it's amazing to see fathers dropping their children off, their girls off at school, because this is completely unheard of in a typical low-caste community. The fathers don't believe in investing in their daughters. Right. Their daughters well, are yes. How did she convince? Off. How did she convince the parents to to let the children come when they Time. probably should be working? Time. Time. That, yeah. When 
as Americans, we we see that there's a problem in the world, and we want to go and fix it immediately, and then come home. And I read, I can't remember what book, what book it was, but they they called it the fast food approach to uh, to charity. But what charity really is about, it's about going into the community and sitting down and talking with the people and finding out from them what their needs are. Right. Instead of us coming in and, and seeing, oh, they don't have shoes. Well, that's the primary need. We need to get them shoes. Yes. Well, actually, maybe it's the children all have worms and the money could be spent to get medication to kill the worm so that they have more energy so so they can be more alert in school. Mm. So it, it so she has spent years in this community. They see how the children have thrived. They she has helped them understand why education is so important and how education can bring their children into a different into a different completely different circumstance than than what they're in right now. Yeah. So that's that's how she's done it. And so when she spoke to me and was so excited about what she wanted to do, I couldn't help but get excited too. And so I asked her how much she needed to expand her school. And at the time she said $20,000. And so when I heard $20,000, I thought, oh my gosh, that's, that's nothing. Right. And I told her, I will make that happen for you. Mm. When I was in Chicago and in New York, I I put together charity events, golf tournaments, galas, you name it. And I have experience in raising the money and I knew for for one person, one person could write a check for $20,000. That's right. And so that's why for me it was just an, it was a no-brainer coming from my world. Now that I'm in the nonprofit world, it's a heck of a lot more difficult to to raise that money. I've I've learned. Well, there there is because there's there's a lot of competition. You know, there's there's just a lot of different organizations out there. Um, Deanne, we're going to take one quick break for our sure. sponsor, and and we'll be right back. We're with Deanne Wingate, founder of Rippled Purpose and Blessed Lotus. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch. I'm having a wonderful conversation with Deanne Wingate. And Deanne is the founder of Rippled Purpose and Blessed Lotus, two organizations that she created that are that are charitable and helping to fight against human trafficking in impoverished communities, as well as contributing to social entrepreneurship um, among the poor. And uh, Deanne, I'm just, yeah, I'm just overwhelmed by your story and and um, especially how, what you're describing about your time in India and how you took that experience. Um, and rather than really kind of letting it get you down, you, 
you know, it it forced you to want to do something about it and make a change. I wanted to ask you, the the woman, Elena, that you were referring to, is she from India or is she from the U.S. as well? She's from Brazil. She's from Brazil. Okay. How did she end up in India? Was it something that, um, you know, was that a work-related opportunity or did she go there purposefully to, to make a difference there? She felt a calling. Okay. She felt a calling right. uh, to be a missionary and to go serve the the impoverished in India. Yeah. Um, let's let's talk about now your um, returning to Charlotte in 2012, sure. and I want to get right into your um, your decision to establish the organization Rippled Purpose because that came before uh, the the apparel company Blessed Lotus, correct? It did. I was. Actually, I was sitting, I I went to visit my dad when I returned to the States. My dad lives in Birmingham, and he's an entrepreneur. So I sat down with him and told him, all right, Dad, so I'm going to start a nonprofit. Because in my head, I thought, okay, I could go out and raise this $20,000 for one person, for Elena, Mm -hmm. to help her expand her school. But I know there are more local change makers, either someone who has lived in the community and has a relationship with the community or is from the community who understands that education is a way to get these children out of poverty, and they, but they don't have the resources, they don't have the funds, mm-hmm. they need help. So I'm just going to start a nonprofit so I can help anyone, as many as I can, Bring, bring education to impoverished and oppressed children. So I told my dad, all right, Dad, so I'm starting this nonprofit. And I, by the way, I've never run a nonprofit before. So we'll see what happens. Let's just move forward. So I, in the same conversation with him, I decided, all right, now in the past I've raised this money for charitable organizations and – Uh, And I realized it is going to take a whole lot of work for me to raise money. Not only that, there's so much communicate, so much competition Mm -hmm. between all the different charities across across the country and across the world. So I decided to to do something different, and I got this idea from Blake, who started Tom Shoes. I've been wearing tunics that I purchased in India. In India. I tried to to wear the clothes out of respect so that I could blend in with the culture. So I'd wear tunics with pants. And when I came back to the States, I would wear the tunics as, as cute little dresses. Mm-hmm. And every time I went out and I was wearing a tunic, a, a woman would come up to me and say, oh, my goodness, I love what you're wearing. Where did you get it? I've never seen it before. So that is what helped create this idea when I was sitting and talking with my dad, all right, I'm going to import tunics from India and I'm going to sell these tunics to help raise money for, for ripple purpose for to place education, place schools in slums in India and then around the world. So that's what I did. And I, what a great idea. What a great idea. I mean, you have, you have to start somewhere, right? And, and, to do something so specific like that, knowing that, you know, women here, um, they love fashion and, and, you know, if they've already been uh, making these comments to you, what a great idea. 
Well, and, it, and again, it wasn't my original idea. I completely replicated, well, I didn't completely replicate what, what, what they're doing with Tom's shoes, but that's what stemmed this idea. So I have to give Tom's shoes credit for that. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I imported the tunics and I had trunk shows around the country from Chicago all the way down to Orlando. And what I found was women wanted to help. They wanted to, to figure out how they could fight human trafficking, fight child labor, fight poverty, and this was a means for them to do that. Right. Now, because I imported tunics that were made in India, I noticed, and, and based on feedback from all the, the clients that I, that I had ended up, ended up having around the country, I needed to make some changes to the designs because, for example, the chest was a little bit tighter. They wear clothes tighter there in the chest area and around the arms. But um, and because they wear the tunics with pants in India, the slits were really high. There were just some modifications that needed to be done. Right. Mm-hmm. So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to create my own fashion line. And so that's what I did. <laughs> now, I have... So I have no, again, once again, I have no background in fashion design. That's okay. You can teach yourself anything. (laughs) (laughs) You can. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what I did. So I designed a line of women's apparel. Mm -hmm. And the line is, it's, it's more contemporary, not so much India inspired. Ponchos. I have some, um, Modal cotton dresses that are in bright, in brilliant colors. It's more looks like resort wear, and it gives women the opportunity to wear something that makes them beautiful on the outside, but it's also a reflection of their beauty on the inside too, because they're wearing it and they bought it with a purpose. Yeah. Now, are these designed as well in India? They. I am working with a factory in India, who is a fair trade. I made sure they work with Piperline and work with Marks and Spencer, mm-hmm. which is a huge uh, retailer in in the UK, right, and in Europe. Um, so yeah, so that's that's my factory now. My goal, or what I would love to do, is to create my own factory in India where people are working. There's a school in the factory. There's a hospital, or there's a medical dental. But that's on down the road. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a that's a great what a great goal to have. That's 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 one of the dreams. Yeah. But, um, yes. So where I'm at with um, with Blessed Lotus and what the real opportunity and what gets me so jazzed too is that when I was doing my research, the the women's apparel industry globally in 2014 was 621 billion dollars. Wow. Can you imagine if we took 10% of that to get to give back to make a social impact? Yeah. Yeah. How how that could change the world. Mhm. So what I what I'm also trying to do just like Tom Shoes has done and and Whole Foods and many other companies are doing is are setting a platform for not only making a profit and not only giving back to shareholders and employees, but giving back to giving back to the world. 
and the importance of that and how good it is to have that mission. What I found when companies do decide to to have a triple bottom line and do decide that they are going to to make an impact and invest in in the so, in social some sort of a social need around the world it creates loyalty externally with customers but mm-hmm. it also creates loyalty within within the companies because with the millennials and the and younger they want to identify and be loyal and choose companies that are making a difference. Right. And they want to work for companies that are making a difference. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, so and I, I really yes. believe. Yeah. Yep. So, so many companies are, are, are doing that today. I would say more than ever. And I, and I think yes. it, it stems from our ability to know what's happening in other parts of the world on a whole different level than we used to. So exactly. how can you just how can you ignore it, right? If you have the ability to to make a difference, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I want I wanted to talk about you know um, I I took a quote off of your website because I think sure. it 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 relates to how you came up with the title Ripple to Purpose, and I think mm-hmm. it's significant because when I asked you about how you uh, move forward and not become overwhelmed with the enormous mm-hmm. you know need. Um, you use this quote, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters mm-hmm. to create many ripples. And that's uh, Mother Teresa's, yeah. one, of her, one of her best quotes. And it's so, so true. So in those moments when you feel there's just too much to be done, I, I can't. W- one tiny little gesture does um, extend to the next. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and that's where big things come from. So that's what and you're I, doing. Well, and, and what I'm tr- – I have had so many lessons in my life, and the, and especially within the past – the past year has been really monumental for me. I was watching an interview uh, Oprah was doing with a, a, a father with a priest and talking about suffering and that suffering – when we use suffering – as as a way to learn about ourselves, it becomes a gift. And if we don't, if we allow ourselves to become bitter and sad and angry, then the suffering was for nothing. That's right. So all of my life, I've felt when any when anything happened to me that was negative, I had to figure out a way to to make it positive. And and so that's. That's what I've done with the past, especially the past year. I've gotten married, had a baby in the process of getting divorced and starting Blessed Lotus and not making any income since 2010. I've been using my retirement. I use my retirement to start Ripple Purpose, and I actually was funding the majority of Ripple Purpose and up until February of last year. So the money has dwindled. So there's been a lot of a lot of stress and a lot of obstacles. So what I decided to do last year really is as a therapy for me just to start right and to start blogging. And so I created a hub, findmeaningnow.com, as a place to share what was happening in my life. 
so that women could see who were in that same situation, one, they're not alone, and two, some that has happened to someone, and they're look what they are doing with it to mm-hmm. make them better and to use that situation to bring them to a better place and to become a, a better person. So that has been for me and and I and I've I've received some some kind words from lots of folks about the impact that that has made. But I wanted to collectively or just to put together why it's how to find purpose in your life. I speak in front of lots of organizations. People are just, they're very shocked at, at how my life has changed from being a high-powered executive in New York to, to going to India to doing what I'm doing now. And so they want to hear, well, how did you do this? Why did you do it? And I think a lot of them want to hear it because they've got this nagging inside of themselves mm-hmm. that is, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm going to work every day or I'm doing the same thing every day, but I feel like there's something more. I feel like there's something more. And I read this or I read an article about a woman who wrote a book after she had spent time with people who were in the last month or so of their life. She was a nurse in Australia and she said the biggest regret that they that they shared was that they had lived a life for someone else and not for themselves. Yeah, and it's so, that feeling of not being fulfilled. Exactly, exactly. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to just all the questions that I get whenever I speak to the organizations, I'm going to put together an ebook and address those questions. And so I wrote finding meaning from the inside out and uh to to for that reason. And the reason why I say finding meaning from the inside out is because you can't figure out what your purpose is until you know your heart and until you love yourself. And originally when I started thinking about this whole notion of loving myself, I thought, wow, that sounds very um, narcissistic Mm -hmm. and very selfish. But I realized the more compassion you have for yourself, the more you have for others. The more love you have for yourself, the more love you have to give to give others. And so I, this, the book shares how you can get connected and get engaged with your heart so that you can live this authentic life that's true to yourself, to thy own, to thine own self be true. So um, that was finding meaning from the inside out that I published, and then I also is that only an yeah. e- is that an ebook only, Deanne? It is. It is an ebook. Okay. Um, yes, and I'm going to have it right now. You can find it on DeanneWingate.com. Okay. I'm going to be releasing it on Amazon next next week. Oh, great! Yes. Great. Congratulations. And then I also just am publishing another book on Amazon next week and on DNWingate.com called Seeing Through Fear. Mm-hmm. And as I've been going through last year and and seeing all the obstacles in my path, the, the divorce, having a child by myself and, and impending motherhood and being a mom on my own, 
at 40 and not having a paycheck and running a nonprofit and starting a for-profit Blessed Lotus, there's a lot of fear. That's there's, right. That's there's scary there's stuff of, right there. Yeah. <laughs> so I have. Uh, so I thought, you know what? I'm going to use the exercises and the things that I have done to help me get through yes. what I've, but all of my fears. I'm going to just put it together in a seven-day process and put it in an ebook. So that's seeing through fears based on. Really, I'm going to use the word authentic again, but it's an authentic process that I used and continue to use every day. Fear doesn't – it's not – and I'm sure you, you understand this. Fear isn't something that you that you see through it, and then it's gone, and you never no. experience it again. Yeah, it's especially with us every day, every day. Especially if you decide that you're going to take a road less traveled. That's right. You're going – right, and you're going to go on an uncharted path. Holy cow. You're going to be a courageous person. You're going to be a courageous person because you're going to have these obstacles that you're going to have to fight. So you need ammunition. You need you need a tool to help you get through the hard times. So that's what I I wrote seeing through fear as a resource to help people who are going through difficult times, going through obstacles to help them get through that. Yeah, which is all of us. So that what a wonderful, you know, what a wonderful uh, gift that that is, um, you know, Providing tools that have worked for for you are certainly going to help someone else. Can I give you some exciting things that have happened with Ripple Purpose? Sure. Yes. Uh, (laughs) That's why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) This is what gets me out of bed in the morning as I look at my son, who's 18 weeks old. Well, I wanted to talk about him, too. I don't want to run out of time, and and I want to know what that little bundle of joy has taught you. My gosh, what a miracle of love. So... (laughs) Um, with Ripple Purpose, we have so we started with we have two programs. We have the school that Elena started that I'm supporting, right? And then we started our own initiative in a tent dwelling community in Bangalore. And this was when I was in India. I saw people literally living in tents and children without shoes and just running around by themselves. Their parents weren't there because they had gone to to work in construction. And it just, it, I, I could not believe what I was seeing. And again, if you see something, it, this should not be, this should not be this way. When there are so many people driving by, this should not be happening. And so I I had established an amazing relationship with, with a woman who was an Indian native in Bangalore on my trip and said, you know what, we need to start an initiative for these children. We need to bring school to them. We need to bring love for them. We need to bring to offer a place that protects them from being exploited, from being kidnapped. Um, And so that's what we did. And we started with 25 children and now we at 25 children in 2013. And now we have, 72 children. Oh, that's one. So uh, another school in, in Bangalore, did you say? Or Bangalore? Yeah, so, yes. Yeah. So our, so we have a, a school in Bangalore, and then Elena's school is in Goa, which is in a, a different part of, of the country. Okay. So we've got two, two programs that we are supporting, and it is incredible. A story from one 
of, of the of the kids in the nest program, there's a there's a little girl, four years old. She sleeps in an outhouse. She has found a uh, a large a leaf from a, a coconut tree, and she laid it on the ground of the outhouse so that she would have a place to sleep. And mm. she's doing this because she doesn't feel she feels scared in her where she's living. Her mom was murdered when she was a baby. Oh my goodness! And her father and her aunt and her grandmother were taking care of her. And there are we think there might be some violence happening there. So. We're, re- we're trying to establish a relationship to find out what's happening there. But we discovered this little girl living and sleeping in this in this outhouse and told her to come to school. And so when she started coming to school, she would sit in the corner because she didn't want to get involved. I mean, you can imagine if you're growing up in an abusive household, the last thing you want to do is, is to have any attention be drawn to mm-hmm. you. You want to just right. basically you... dissolve into the wall. Right, right. Well... Now she goes in front of the class, she says her ABCs, she stands up, she plays with the children. So this little girl has completely blossomed because of the love and the nurturing that she's been given at the center. And we also, we give her food, extra food for her whenever whenever she leaves. But that's just an amazing story of, of the powerful transformation that can happen for these children when they get love. And when they get nurturing. And um, another example is of um, we, for the month of June, we have a theme for every month in the NEST program. And for the month of June, it was fruit. And the children had never eaten fruit before, which is amazing because mangoes are so popular growing there, but they just, they didn't have access to it. What they eat, they eat rice. That's the, the majority of the food that they're eating is consistent of rice. And so my program director brought in fruit so that as they learned about the fruit, they could taste the fruit. So they tried all different fruits, from bananas to pineapples, you name it. And she took pictures and sent them to me of the faces of these children when they tasted the sweetness of the fruit yeah. for the first time. Oh, my and, gosh. You know, some of these Children are eight years old. It, I cried. I, oh, I she bet. She told me the story. I, I, I couldn't help it. Yeah. You know, Deanne, I want to, here's a question for you. I, you know, when you were telling the story about the little girl, how do you not just scoop her up and bring her home? I mean, that that's where I would not be um, as strong as you. I'd be putting them all in my pocket and bringing them home. Um, how do you, you know what I mean? How do you walk away oh, from those scenes? Because they're so, Sue, they're, there's so many. Yeah, I they're know. Everywhere. Yes. And when you are, Ugh. when you fly in and fly in, let's say you fly into Mumbai and, and you and you get into your taxi, all along the, the highway from the airport on the dirt, on the side of the road, both on both sides of the road, dirt, people are living yeah. in, in shacks and in tents. And you see children, I mean, it is, I'm like, anything I've ever experienced in my life. So so that's how I can't because, well, one, I mean, obviously you can't because they need passports. Right, um, right. I'm just totally <laughs> I mean, being I hypothetical, but head, yes, yes. I, but, um, but that's why what can we do? We can give them an education. We can offer a place that protects them. Mm-hmm. We can get to know their parents. We can find out 
what the situation is there, if there is indeed truly a situation, and we can try to fix it. Now, you know, from a government standpoint, these people, they're the low, they're the low caste. And so they're seen as not even human. They're just, that's the reason why these people are living on the sides of the highways from when you go from the airport and why that continues because they're completely overlooked. Right. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so what can I do? I, I can give, use my retirement to start a nonprofit that brings education to these children mm-hmm. so that a difference can be made and so that they can have a different life. That's what I can do. Right. And you're doing it. You are doing it. Um, Dean, I'm so I'm just so impressed by your story and, and so honored to have met you and, um, you know, thrilled that we're connected. And uh, we only have a, a few minutes left. I want to be sure that you give the, the contact information so that the listeners can get in touch with you um, for both Rippled Purpose and Blessed Lotus. Oh, sure. You can reach out to me um, on email, Deanne, D-E-A-N-N-E, at Rippled Purpose, R-I-P-P-L-E-D, purpose.com. You can also go to our website, rippledpurpose.com and blessedlotus.com to find out more. But I would love, if you, I love opportunities to speak to organizations about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I love just one-on-one conversations. If you, there are people who are interested in just finding out my story and want to talk about it further, I am open to sharing and using my life to help and empower other people and, and other women to, to, to changing their life too. Yeah. Finding their own calling. Exactly. Yeah. That's terrific. Deanne, I'm so appreciative of your joining us today. Thank you so much and uh, continue the great work that you're doing. You're making a big, big difference. Okay, Sue, and thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great day. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and if you'd like to get in touch with me to uh, find out more about the show, feel free to reach out to our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone.